30 years, cellular mobile connections have meant macro towers, these 200-foot towers that we're all familiar with that are out in fields or on top of rooftops, and, and they cover anywhere from a half-mile to five-mile radius. They're serving hundreds of people. 5G will be different, and it'll be very different than what's what's gone on for the past 30 years where carriers have competed on coverage and covering large amounts of people with, with these very fairly high-power macro towers. Small cells varies, but these might cover only 200 yards, 1,000 yards. The, the key word is densification, a much more dense network where, where you need infrastructure, particularly in urban areas, every block or two. But that gives you the ability to have much more capacity and, and lower latency and, and that sort of thing. Welcome to the Mercatus Policy Download. I'm your host, Chad Reese. And today I'm here with my co-host, Kate Delanoy, to let you know what's on tap here at Mercatus. How are you, Kate? I'm doing well. How about you, Chad? I am living the dream. Thanks for asking. Uh, I will get us started by letting our listeners know what's on tap uh, drink-wise today. So from Trogues, we are drinking the Crimson Pistol IPA. I know we talked about IPAs before. You're not a huge fan. This one's made with hibiscus flour. I don't 100% know what hibiscus is, but I know that this beer tastes better than other IPAs, according to people who don't like IPAs. So I'm optimistic. All right. Well, the label's beautiful. So I am looking forward to trying this. Great. Well, I'm going to go ahead and crack this one open. If you want to let me and our listeners know what's on tap at Mercatus this week. Yes. So we've got a brand new book out this week from our trade and immigration program, and it's by Pierre Lemieux, and it's called What's Wrong with Protectionism? In the book, Pierre takes a look at some of the the biggest fears that folks have about free trade and, you know, really seeks to kind of address them in a serious manner because, you know, people are worried about jobs and things moving overseas. And so he goes through the book and really explains how free trade can actually be a huge benefit to people here in the U.S. and also how protectionism can end up raising prices on things that we really need, like cars, groceries, clothes. So it's a really interesting read. He does a great job making all those points in a way that's pretty snappy. So you can definitely get that done before school starts in the next few weeks. I would highly recommend people check it out on Amazon. And I believe we have a Q&A up on the bridge. Yes, I was about to say. So we had the chance to do kind of a question and answer session with Pierre on issues about the book. So if you kind of want a preview of the book, not sure if you are wanting to buy it yet, I definitely recommend going to the bridge. Check out the Q&A. Uh, you'll have a little bit better sense of what the book is actually about. And then if you are still on the fence, uh, I think you can download the foreword for the book on our website for free. Is that right? Yes. And it is written by our very own Dan Griswold and Don Boudreau. So definitely recommend folks head over to the bridge and then from there over to Amazon. Sounds good. And then I listened to the CWT that we talked about last time with Michael Pollan. That was definitely kind of far out. We did not lead you astray. It was a good one. <laughs> it was. It was a lot of fun. Um, and there's another one coming out next week. And the guest is Claire Lehman. Yeah. So some of our listeners who are familiar with the media outlet Quillette might know that name right off the bat. So Quillette was founded back in 2015 uh, by Claire. Um, I'm kind of excited about this. I've heard it's a really interesting conversation. Claire and Tyler talk about Australia, political correctness, and psychology, which is Claire's background. So there's a lot in there for our listeners. I think it's kind of a diverse, wide-ranging conversation that's going to be of interest to basically anybody. There's going to be something in there for you if you enjoy this kind of conversation whatsoever. Awesome. 
Next week, we've got folks on the road. I know summer is wrapping up in some places. School's already back in session. But here in Virginia, you know, summer goes through all of August. So <laughs> That's right. Matt Mitchell's going to be down in the great state of Texas next week, going to be testifying before the Texas Senate Business Committee on the occupational licensing and some of the problems that are caused by occupational licensing. So I think that'll be a, a good testimony. People will be able to find the testimony on our website and I'll be curious to hear what Matt learns from his time there and also what kind of food he gets to have. Oh, is he into the Austin food scene? I mean, who is not into the Austin food scene? Fair enough. Well, never having been into, been to Austin, I would put myself in that category. <sighs> All right. Well, well, when you schedule a trip, I'll, I'll make some recommendations. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, I will, speaking of recommendations, go ahead and recommend that you stick around for the rest of our conversation today. But before we get to that, I want to get your thoughts on this beer. I like it. You are right when you said that people who don't like IPAs as much tend to like them when they have hibiscus. So you definitely get like a a fruity floral taste in the front. Great. I am not a liar, at least on this occasion. Always good to hear. Yes. Uh, I am also a fan of this beer. I like, This is one of my go-to kind of six-pack beers. Like, it's nothing super exciting, but it's just kind of easy drinking, enjoyable, still a little bit of good flavor. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with a four out of six stars for this. Four out of five stars, I'm sorry. You I'm going to go four with- Four out of six. <laughs> <laughs> Create your own system. I'm going to go a little bit lower just because it is still an IPA, but- it's an IPA I like, so I'm going to go with three and a half stars Great. out of five. Great. Well, speaking of five, I'm glad you got the scale right because you should stick around for our conversation about 5G. Uh, so we're talking wireless technology. We've got FCC Commissioner O'Reilly in the house talking with our own in-house expert Brent Scorup on the topic. We're talking about what 5G is, why it matters for future technology, why you should get excited about it, and for policymakers, kind of what they can do to be ready for it. So it's a great, great conversation I think we're going to have today. Yeah, looking forward to it. Sounds good. Cheers. Cheers. For most of us, terms like 3, 4, and 5G may not mean much more than an indicator that we can use our smartphones or that it's time to upgrade them to a newer model. They were simply markers of each new generation in wireless technology, and at least for people like me, we mostly just think of them as slight upgrades to our internet speed. But for telecommunications policy experts, 5G really matters. Some have predicted that exciting new technologies like driverless cars can only become a reality with the speed and reliability that 5G will provide. Futuristic smart homes that rely on a variety of different internet-connected devices may need the flexibility that 5G offers, and virtual reality may only be convincing in a 5G world. But if 5G is really that different from 4G, it's fair to ask if we're prepared for that change. Today, we're going to talk about what needs to happen, particularly in the policymaking world, in order to capture the full benefits of the next generation of telecommunications technology. Here to do that, I'm joined by two guests who are eminently qualified to discuss the topic. First, I'm happy to welcome Federal Communications Commission Commissioner Michael O'Reilly to the show. Prior to his time as commissioner, Michael O'Reilly worked for years on Capitol Hill on banking, technology, transportation, trade, and commerce issues. So if anyone is prepared to talk about the wide-ranging implications of telecom policy, it's him. Welcome to the show, Commissioner. Many thanks for having me. It's a great opportunity to talk through some really important issues. And next up, I'm pleased to welcome back to the show, Brent Skora. Brent is a senior research fellow here at Mercatus, where he focuses on wireless policy, new media regulation, telecommunications, and transportation technology. Welcome back, Brent. Chad, thanks for having me again. 
So this is important with any topic, but I think especially when we're talking about technology policy, we need to make sure that we're talking in concrete terms about why this stuff actually matters so that people can get their heads wrapped around it, right? So I'm just kind of curious, at a really 30,000-foot level, what does 5G mean to you all? So when someone says 5G, what neurons fire in your head, and why do you think that our listeners should care about it? Well, first and foremost, it's important to note that there is no firm definition at this time of what is 5G. But what I think think it matters to consumers is it's higher speeds, lower latency, greater capacity, and the ability to do new cases that we can't do today with 4G. Now, it's important to remember that unlike previous generations, and that's what the G stands for, we're not going to replace 4G. It's going to complement that, and, and it will roll out at different times throughout our nation and bring exciting new services to Americans. Yeah, I mean, the commissioner hit it on the head. I'd just add, I mean, 5G, as you said, the standards process is still evolving. And every 10 years or so, the global cellular companies and device makers get together and and figure out technical standards for terms of speed and latency that, that mobile devices have to have. But there's also 5G has come in, I mean, in reporting, and even I probably slip into it as a colloquial meaning of just higher higher speed mobile connections. And why consumers should care about it is we'll, we'll have new applications that, that come out. And, and just as 15 years ago, it would be hard to say with 4G what would come out. I mean, things like, like Uber and, and, and streaming video and mobile video and all these things, it, it's hard to predict, but I mean, we, we can kind of see on the horizon, you know, some things like people will be able to more easily cut the cord on, on a landline broadband connection and, and have a, a hotspot in their home or a Wi-Fi router in the home that only has uh, only uses the wireless uh, connection. There's a company I, I like to mention in these discussions is a company called Ira. And so this is a company that uh, I believe they work with AT&T today, but they might work with with other mobile companies. But they, they have a, a smart glasses application for people who are blind or, or uh, other visual impairment. These smart glasses are constantly filming the world, and there's an earpiece for, for the person who's using it. And it's, it's sending back a high bandwidth video to someone who's hundreds of miles away, and that person is narrating what that blind person is seeing. And it's, it's pretty remarkable. Like I said, this is on the market today. Uh, some people are, are using this. They can buy the service by the bucket. 90 minutes a month, uh, 200 minutes a month. All, all that to say, I mean, th- there are these fascinating applications that you can, kind of marginal cases that you can, when you have higher bandwidth, you can you can test, you can iterate, and, and you can experiment and see if there's market demand or not, and and if so, deploy it widely. And so 5G, just with, with all the capacity, you can start to test out these these kinds of applications. Well, and Brent makes a great point. I had the opportunity many months ago to use those exact device oh, in my right. office. Wow. Uh, and it's a really I- interesting uh, opportunity for what it can bring to visually impaired people. But it highlights exactly what we may not know about what 5G, the case studies are still to be developed. But having a faster pipe, a pipe that can, parry, can carry more capacity, and a pipe that has lower latency is going to provide exciting new opportunities. So now that we've got everybody excited about this stuff, and maybe, Commissioner, you, you teed us off by saying that there are going to be different rollout times kind of throughout the country, but what does the timeline look like for the average consumer here? So I am admittedly an intentionally like a second or third generation adopter. Like I like to wait till everybody else has tried things out. So I'm not going to be the guy who says, oh my gosh, 5G phones, I'm going to go get mine. But for those people who are like, when can I get my 5G phone? What does that look like for different people and kind of 
what determines that, right? Is it just living in a big city or is it living in a, a state that is has certain qualities where it's easier to build these networks? What does just the timeline look like? Well, in fairness, uh, some of those phones are being you know developed and getting ready for deployment in a relatively month time frame. We're short universe. I was reading just uh, over the weekend a number of devices will be available five G by a number of providers. So that's 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 happening. But in terms of where it may happen, you're seeing wireless carriers announce certain cities that they will use as test markets. I wouldn't say test markets, but their initial markets, initial initial deployments. Uh, Verizon came out yesterday and said they're adding Indianapolis to their deployment plan. That's four cities total by the end of the year that they're going to be operational. Uh, and then AT&T is obviously doing the same and, a- and T- T-Mobile is doing the same. They have a different spectrum they're using for different pieces. But altogether, you're going to see a 5G product uh, in many markets. It's not going to go universal. So Washington, D.C. may not be in the early uh, cycle. It may be in, uh, fit nicely with your pattern of, <laughs> of, of second or third generation or second or third trial. Uh, effort. Commissioner, are you here telling me that Washington, D.C. is not the cool, hip, technologically savvy city that I believe it to be, sir? Well, it can. <laughs> it, it certainly can be. Uh, it's really a question of have have the people in Washington, the greater D.C. area, you know, made it easier or made it beneficial for providers to want to roll out here versus somewhere else. Uh, and then well, I'm sure we'll get into some of the obstacles to 5G. But that, that really matters where they pick cities and where they're going to start uh, in deployment. It, it, it does matter how the local governments have handled handled uh, and approached uh, a number of obstacle issues that the barriers uh, that carriers face. Yeah, I'll I'll just add, I mean, right, Verizon is is doing some pilot programs. I believe AT&T is doing some as well, commercial rollout in certain cities uh, for fixed wireless. And that that seems to be, I mean, that's probably the safest investment. I mean, people need a a broadband connection at home. And so that's that's where many of these companies are, are going with it. And the idea, again, is you can maybe cut your, your cable broadband if, if you find a better price or a better bundle with, with a 5G provider. I know Verizon is tying in some some video platform, YouTube TV and, the, and uh, that sort of thing. So it'll be interesting to see how, how this goes. Uh, you know, fixed wireless just as a genre, uh, you're seeing more more providers getting into that game, largely because the, the FCC for the past few years has been opening up new spectrum for, for these providers to use. But um, and by yeah, fixed wireless, is this we're just talking about like your internet connection at home, yeah, the office home broadband. But whereas most people have it have a, a fixed connection, a landline connection from their cable provider or their phone provider, like like Verizon FiOS, fixed wireless would be a high bandwidth fixed connection. You might have an antenna on your rooftop or inside of your living room, and the the connection from your house to the network would be wireless instead of that landline that goes through down your driveway and, and onto the street. But so, yeah, th- this is coming out this year. Uh, mobile devices are coming out uh, imminently. So Yeah, the standard tuned. and mobiles, they're still cranking through it. Uh, but we're not too far o- away from all that. I mean, to go back to your first question, one way I like to look upon it uh, is a definition and framework for, for 5G. It's been called wireless fiber. So not necessarily words that go together, you know, per right. se, but, but, that's, but you can envision what can happen over a wireless device and, and over the frequencies that we're allocating. A really exciting time for, uh, for technology. And you kind of cued us up just a second ago by talking about, you know, policy roadblocks and the things that are going into these companies' decisions about where to invest and what kinds of projects to pursue. So I'm kind of curious, and I mean, obviously, we can we can start at the federal level. We can obviously talk about state and local policies to the extent that those are relevant. But what really are the major 
we'll start maybe talking about policy roadblocks, right? Like policies that are in place now that didn't envision the challenges or the opportunities that 5G presents. Where, Commissioner, are you focusing and where are your fellow commissioners focusing? And then maybe, Brent, what has your research kind of shown about, you know, paths forward and what our options are? Well, sure. Uh, I, I would say that they're, they're not necessarily federal roadblocks, but to your point, where are and, and and how I highlighted earlier, you're seeing carriers determine what markets they go into. A lot of them are, uh, you know, business decisions. What you know, demographics of a community where they they think that they can get a return on investment. Uh, a number of decisions along that. But the obstacles imposed by local, state, and tribal governments have influenced their decision making, and that's so they're not federal policies that are the barriers. It is decisions by local, state, and, and tribal governments that are blocking the ability of providers to deploy networks. And and one of the first things that comes to mind is the, the ability to uh, install what are known as small cell technologies. You're not going to have the big macro towers all uh, in necessity. They'll still use the macro towers. They're not going to go away overnight. But you're still you're going to have to deploy a new technology because the distances are much shorter in 5G, at least in the current tests have been. So that, that means you're deploying a lot more small cells um, just like the term implies. Uh, and, and so the policies that, that states and local governments have had as and, and tribal governments have had for macro towers don't make sense for the small cell. And there's two two parts. One is the application process. How do I get approved by a community? And the second is the cost. What is the cost for the application, for the monthly uh, use of a right-of-way, for instance, or any other cost that they have to deploy the network? And you're seeing what markets are being picked based on how friendly or how receptive the local community is in addressing those issues up front. Yeah, I'll, I'll just highlight I mean, why 5G is a novel policy issue is is because of this uh, small cells and 5G are, are, are tightly wrapped together. So for 30 years, cellular mobile connections have meant uh, macro towers, these you know 200-foot towers that we're all familiar with that are out in fields or on top of rooftops, and, and they cover anywhere from a half-mile to five-mile radius. They're serving hundreds of people. 5G will be different, and it'll be very different than what's what's gone on for the past 30 years where carriers have competed on coverage and, and covering large amounts of people with, with these very uh, fairly high-power uh, macro towers. Small cells varies, but these might cover only 200 yards, 1,000 yards. The, the keyword is densification, a much more dense network where, where you need infrastructure, particularly in urban areas, every, every, every block or two. But that gives you the ability to have much more capacity and, and lower latency and, and that sort of thing. So I, I think that's why... The FCC is is looking at this, and, and they formed the Broadband Deployment Advisory Committee last year as, as part of that to get experts Which thank together. Thank you for your service. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm part of that, and for the last year and a half, we've been getting experts together to discuss how do we increase broadband to rural areas and, and urban areas in light of these novel novel issues with 5G, where you need to get on city rights of way, along roadways, you need to be on utility poles uh, much more than than in the past, and so there's no easy easy answers to this, and we're we're struggling. I think a lot of it is just education for you know for me and, and others and, and for city leaders about this is coming. These are the benefits. These are the applications, and you know be aware of it. And and uh, and the FCC make sure that cities are charging reasonable fees uh, because that can sometimes be an issue. 
Well, and that gets to the point, you know, what is what is the obligation of the FCC? We certainly have some policy things that we, you know, that that pertain to the federal side of the equation. We're dealing with some things that we may have screwed up in the past on Twilight Towers, for instance, towers that weren't approved and our rules weren't very clear. And now we have to go back and address that so we can, can tamp that issue down. But we have to deal, you know, we two two items we've already addressed this year. One on historic preservation lands. What? How can we use antennas? How can we use exi- existing areas without having the through the rigmarole uh, of a full-blown environmental approval process. Uh, and two, we just did an item last month regarding pole attachments uh, and the ability of localities or states to impose moratoria, which is basically a process where they say, you know what, we're going to take our time and decide on, on, on how we're, we're going to take a time out, basically, and we'll figure out what we want to do for these small cells. And I think Brent explained it very well. Small cells, we're talking about something that's, you know, the size, people say, oh, it's a pizza box or a bread box, but somewhere you know, give or take 30 pounds right now. And it's been shrinking. In the last two years, I've seen it shrunk. It's probably half of what it used to be and half as heavy as it used to be. And you've got to get power to that. You've, you know, one good place that people use is street uh, street lights because you've already got power there. But in some instances, you can drop fiber pretty easily. And so that's something where you can see, uh, you know, that's why people talk about urban densification because it can be the street lights where you can be the first deployment downtown DC or here in Arlington or wherever the case may be. So obviously, I mean, Brent, you're on the advisory commission. Commissioner, you're part of the commission. You all are sort of doing this. But let's just pretend for a second that I'm a, I'm a mayor of a medium-sized city. I'm from I'm a Kentucky native, so let's just say I'm the mayor of Lexington, Kentucky, right? And I come to you guys and I say, look, Lexington's a growing city, college town, really want to be at the forefront of this stuff. What's the, what's the one thing or maybe the, the two things that I should, I should really have in mind if, if I want Lexington to, to really be an opportunity for these, these firms? Well, I would say it's not something coming to us or the commission at the federal government level. It is it is having a conversation with the with the uh, providers who are seeking to uh, serve the community, and there are four nationwide providers and many regional providers, and and they're interested uh, in deploying their networks, and they're going town to town and city to city and state to state to try and figure out where's the best environment. And so, if I am a mayor of whatever location, but if it's Lexington, I, I want to put myself out there and say we will have a, a process um, for approval of small cells in this amount of time period, which is very reasonable uh, and, and, and exceeds the industry norms and what you're able to do in others. And here's the cost of what we're expecting. It's, rel- it's relatively very narrow. It's, 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 it's going to be low cost because we really want to entice a provider to come and serve us first. Uh, there'll be, you know, you can wait, you can be back of the line because that's what will happen. The investment dollars will go elsewhere unless you have a, a creative uh, incentive to, to make the, the provider want to come to serve an area. And so if you're in Lexington, you're you, you know the the way to to do it is have a process that's still thoughtful, but is but is less burdensome than the past one, and one that is at, on, on a cost that's not prohibitive. I'm thinking of a story I heard from someone who, who's on the on the BDAC who has a fiber installation company, and so and and they said uh, so just one one example in in the Birmingham, Alabama area alone, they had to receive permissions from 48 different jurisdictions to lay fiber just to cover the Birmingham metropolitan area. And so I think 5G providers and, and fiber builders will will um, are running into this, uh, this kind of fragmentation of, of jurisdiction. And and these are novel problems for cities too. They, they might not have uh, a streamlined process. They might not have a point person uh, for, for carriers to talk to. And so a point person would be a you know, recommendation, just a single phone number to call to get these things and, and a timeline for 
uh, for providers, time is money. And the longer it takes for them and, and the more they have to pay lawyers to get through the process means, uh, unfortunately, the, the more marginal areas, often the rural areas, you know, that comes typically out of out of that area because those, those are more marginals. And hopefully, yeah, I don't know exactly how, how, how it'll work, but hopefully cities will, will kind of come together and, and fix some of the fragmentation problems that are just naturally occurring because of uh, all the cities and counties and, and jurisdictions that we have. Well, I would agree with that. And I would say another thing that is money is money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and so if you, you know, you, the, the fees that I have seen and in our record in terms of what some communities are trying to extract from providers are outrageous. Uh, we're talking thousands of dollars per small cell. Uh, and, and that, that is not something that's cost efficient. So if it's, you know, $6,000 to file an application and you have to use their auditor and their inspector at, you know, we saw numbers of $8,000 and then per month they want $4,000 per small cell when the cell itself won't generate those dollars. No one's going to install a cell that doesn't generate any rate of return. So the numbers don't make any sense and they're getting bad advice. There are a number of companies that are advising and a number of consultants that are advising that this is your, this is your opportunity community. This is your chance to try and get as many dollars for whatever purpose you want in the rest of your community. You can use these things for other things. This is your time to extract from these companies that really want to deploy networks. And I, and I would argue on the other side that this is the opportunity for those communities to put their hand out and say, please come and serve. Pre, please bring that wireless broadband to my citizens, my citizenry, who really want the exciting benefits that broadband can bring. And mobility will eventually get to us in the near, very near future. So we've been talking a lot about you know the the visible physical infrastructure that's involved here, right? But one of the issues that I wanted to make sure we had time to get to, and I can't remember who, but somebody mentioned Spectrum earlier. I, I think of that as like the invisible infrastructure that goes along with wireless technology. I'm sure you guys can explain it better better than I can. I think of it as just these uh, invisible tubes through the air through which wireless uh, flows, right? And there are different size bands and all that sort of thing. So can you guys? Give our listeners something better than that to go off. What is Spectrum? Why do we care about it for wireless technology in general? And why is it an important issue for 5G in particular? Well, I'm happy to take, take the first shot at it. Uh, Spectrum is a necessary ingredient for all wireless communications. We generally have good propagation uh, characteristics between 3 hertz and 3 100 gigahertz. So you want to get that in there. Uh, and, and, and that's something that, you know, you can convert uh, into listening devices and, and are, are beneficial for con- for consumers. And so spectrum, it's not necessarily wireless pipes per se, uh, but it's frequencies that are used to tr- transmit wireless signal that can be converted into audio for consumer usage. Yeah, right. And th- these are electromagnetic signals that pass through the air at, at various frequencies. And, you know, I, I, everyone's familiar with a, a, a radio in your in your car, and so somewhere there's a radio broadcaster who has a, a tall tower that that goes 20 miles in every direction, and at 88.5 or, or whatever, they they've tuned the radio to transmit at that, and your your radio is tuned to receive at various uh, frequencies depending on how you turn your dial. And so, and mobile is is a similar similar idea. There's you know, we have these macro towers that transmit at a, at a higher frequency, a higher bandwidth than, than our broadcast radios, and your phone receives uh, signals from it, and, and that gets transmitted uh, into all, those, all the services we're familiar with. And, and the FCC, for decades, has, has allocated and assigned 
spectrum. It's this very valuable invisible resource that's that's controlled by by the federal government. And as technology has gotten better, we we've been able to get to these these higher bands, these higher frequencies where where companies can can now transmit, and you get you can send more bandwidth and and more services, and and five G is part of that. Yeah, so it's exciting, and that's why that's why you've seen mobile technology and cellular technology evolve so quickly because we we have these new bands, we have these new technologies. And, and, and spectrum is the oil that drives that. Well, and one important point to keep in mind is technology has improved our ability uh, and the amount of spectrum that we can use for different purposes. We're able to go up much higher than we could just a few years ago. When I first worked on these issues, and I've been doing them for about 25 years, uh, you know, you really want to be in the sweet spot lower than three gigahertz. Now we're in, like I said, we can go to, you know, not as high as 300, but that's where I know that some of the, some testing has been done. But we're in the hundreds, uh, and and many of the high band 5G uh, technologies are going to be in the 28. 37, 39, 47, 50 gigahertz. Uh, so a very high band uh, frequencies. We're also working really hard to make a mid-band play that doesn't exist today. So it's going to be low band, high band, mid-band, all of those things working together. And the good part, technology has really stretched out what we have available. People like to say it's a finite resource. It's only a finite resource because we haven't invented the new technology to expand it. Yeah, that reminds me of, of something that, that I've raised in the past. I, the, the FCC... Spectrum has traditionally been a federal issue, and in some ways, because the small cells require a lot of local cooperation, uh, localities have a have a big hand in are instrumental in expanding spectrum access. Because if you allow, if a town has one macro tower and you, and you allow a second one, you've doubled the capacity spectrum capacity in that town. If if they have zero small cells right now and, and you allow a dozen or two. You, you've expanded the spectrum capacity hugely in, in that in that area uh, at, on a local basis. So yeah, I hope I hope cities and and state leaders will see this as an opportunity to to accommodate and encourage these new technologies and and what the, what the expansion of spectrum access that de facto they they have a hand in. I'd like to zoom out a little bit. We've we've been kind of focusing on state and local municipalities. What about the international sphere, right? So the United States is often thought about as sort of the gold standard of technology and innovation. Is that the case here? Uh, Are we outpacing places like China, Europe, South Korea? Do they already have 5G? Are they way behind us? Where are we in sort of a, if you want to do a horse race uh, type analogy, how are we doing? Well, it's been described as the race to 5G, and that's actually a legitimate description because there are a number of countries, I would say, you know, maybe just short of half dozen that are fighting to be first to 5G. The United States was first to 4G, and we benefited tremendously from being there. Our carriers benefited, but as a nation, we benefited from GDP was higher, uh, the ca- capacity to consumers and, and the functionality. We were able to help structure the standard settings going forward and able to uh, have the manufacturing base and dictate what what, what uh, devices were going to come forward uh, with our purchasing power. So a very exciting time. What you're seeing in 5G uh, is a race from about four to five nations uh, globally. China is definitely one of them. South Korea, uh, a number of countries that that are seeking to be the leader uh, in 5G because they want those benefits and they'd rather uh, have them go to their country than ours. Uh, and I think what you're seeing at the FCC is a recognition from my colleagues and I that we're not going to let that happen. We're going to make you know all efforts we can to provide our carriers the best opportunity to compete and and roll out 5G uh, as fast as they can humanly possibly do. Um, I like to 
to say it's not setting industrial policy, it's counteracting other countries' industrial policy. So China has a, a, a firm uh, policy of investing hundreds of billions of dollars in 5G and are trying to you know, be there first. And in doing so, uh, they've had some successes. They, they don't have a huge wireline uh, problem. They have a government structure that lets them go and do whatever they want at any time against their people. Uh, and so they can uh, deploy the network and they have the people's money uh, that, that they've been spending uh, for this purpose. We don't have the same opportunity. We rely on the private sector to invest uh, and requires rate of return from the consumers. Uh, and so it requires you know case studies and, and work. But the good part is our carriers are really excited about this and are pushing out to make uh, this happen as soon as possible. So we're in a race. It is a global race. And I think the United States is in a very good position, but we can't uh, rest on our laurels and we can't get stuck with certain policy obstacles that need to be addressed. And that's why the commission is acting so aggressively here. Yeah, that's right. And and you know, every every generation of, of wireless technology, it seems to be there, there's a different region that's one. So I, I would say 2G was won by Japan. And, and there were a lot of applications that, that you could do in Japan that that weren't done elsewhere. And 3G was kind of a European-dominated uh, technology, and, and the U.S. kind of leapt ahead with, with 4G. And 5G, you know, we'll see. Um, the U.S. has, you know, a big head start with, with 4G leadership in Silicon Valley and, and uh, a pretty friendly uh, regulatory environment when it comes to Internet services. But, you know, China is, is a new major player in this, and, and they're, they're doing a lot. It's not always easy to tell what's going on you know, in, in those industries in, in China, but it's an exciting time. And I, I think, you know, it seems like, I mean, certainly the FCC and, and the, car- the U.S. carriers are are aware of, of, of the stakes. And, you know, I'd say we're, we're well positioned, but time will tell. And there was just a, a report done by Deloitte on this exact point last week that suggested that China's already in the lead um, and, 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 and we're in a very bad position. I don't think that's right. Uh, but their points were, you know, the data points that they highlighted were both the ability, the, the antennas and towers that they already had in, in investment, the spectrum that they've already made available. Nobody has put it, no country has put as much spectrum as the United States has for this purpose. And so we're, we're able to do that at a federal level. Um, and, and in terms of the towers, that's the fight we're going to have in the next, you know, couple of years. I do want to get to cybersecurity issues kind of briefly, and I, I probably didn't even leave us enough time to really dive into it. But maybe quickly, if you guys have any thoughts on how 5G changes the game, I know I've seen at least one sort of Internet of Things product manufacturer come out recently saying that 5G opens up a lot of vulnerabilities for a lot of these products. And you know, your smart refrigerator, to the extent that we have them, may not have the same kinds of robust protections because now it's directly connected to a different network uh, and doesn't engage uh, through your home router that might have some more security uh, features. So I'm just kind of wondering, from your all's perspective, uh, thinking of cybersecurity, is 5G more of a, a risk or more of an opportunity? Are we prepared for those new risks? Well, I, I would argue that uh, 5G presents, you know, you're talking about connecting billions and billions of devices in the Internet of Things universe. Uh, and so that potentially provides more risk. But I think that providers are very aware of this and they recognize the only way to maintain consumer confidence and maintain consumer loyalty and their willingness to spend on this is to address that risk. Um, it's not something that we can mandate because you still see with rules on the books at the FTC and other places and states have rushed in to do some of these things. That doesn't, that hasn't 
hasn't prevented uh, hacking, that hasn't prevented some of the vulnerabilities, that still is going to happen. That you try to minimize the risk. It's like a bank who has the best safe. Uh, people may still try to try, but you, you know you want to make sure that they don't try yours. They try your neighbors. <laughs> and, and here, that's what you're seeing. You know, you, you want to have the, the vulnerabilities addressed as best as possible. There'll still be instances, uh, more than likely, where you'll you're going to have uh, you know some some vulnerabilities. Yeah, I, I don't have much to add. I mean, I, I think it, it cuts both ways. I mean, I, I don't lose much sleep about it, uh, but you know, certainly when you have more devices, more vectors for for bad behavior, particularly DDoS attacks, where you take over devices and they they start targeting a target um, that someone appoints. This is when somebody basically takes over all of our smart refrigerators and has them go to a website right, at the right. same time and, and crashes yeah, the server. You're right, and, and uh, yeah, send data and overwhelm overwhelm the server. So it's a possibility. Carry, I mean, cellular in the I can't speak globally, but in the U.S., cellulars tend to be pretty secure. Our, our SIM cards and, and technologies they have are pretty secure. There's not too many, you know, DDoS attacks from cellular devices. So, and carriers are certainly aware of it. And and with with five G, you get these these virtual networks instead of uh, a single network. It's it's virtual, and that mitigates some of the harm. So we'll see. We'll see, but cybersecurity experts, this, this is a, a main concern, particularly as you get sensitive applications, you know, self-driving cars and, you know, glasses and you know, obviously, you know, these, you know, IRA and, and these companies are thinking a lot about it because uh, there, are, there are some sensitivities. Given, obviously there are risks and you all noted those, but it, it is nice to have asked a cybersecurity question and not gotten a doom and gloom response. I feel like I, I go to a lot of policy events and I listen to a lot of people and I think every time someone mentions cybersecurity, it's, oh, and by the way, here's how the world is going to end within the next five years. Uh, so as, as listeners know, I do try to find some note of optimism on which to wrap up our conversation and we're just about out of time. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seize on that. There may be risks, but the opportunities sound pretty exciting and it sounds like providers are pretty aware of the, of the threats and are working towards it. So uh, I do want to make sure I give our listeners some places to keep up with the work that you all are doing, either personally or on behalf of your organizations. So we'll just kind of go around the table. And if you guys have a, a Twitter account or a project or a website you want to promote, uh, now's a great time to do it. Commissioner, we can start with you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm very active on Twitter. I think it's a great means uh, to, to tell the American people what I'm working on. My handle, for lack of a better word, or, or Twitter account is uh, MikeOFCC all lowercase. And then we you'll see a ton of information on our, our FCC.gov website. We put everything we do up there. We try to make it as transparent as possible. All the items I talked about earlier this year and those that will come in the future will be available for consumers to read. Hopefully they're in a form that's not too technical, but I really do try to get as much information so people can, can see the, the hard work that we're, we're trying to do here. I will admit that I did use your all your all's website to prepare for this. And as you all and our listeners could probably figure out, I'm not a tech guy by nature. So to the extent that I said anything sensible, it's a credit to your website and how clear it is. So thank you, guys. It's a credit to the good people at the FCC, the good staff. <laughs> and Brent, how about yourself? Uh, my Twitter handle is uh, bscoreup. Uh, and so you can find me on Twitter. And, and Mercatus has uh, several scholars and affiliated scholars working on, on tech and telecom and media issues. And you can, you can find that at mercatus.org. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at Chad M. Reese or email me at crees at mercatus.gmu.edu with any questions, comments, episode ideas, or complaints. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.